6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Chronicles, chapters 18 through 21. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him before and behind, he chose out of all the choice of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. That's the one he sweated first. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in array against the children of Ammon. So it's Ammon to the south, Syrian to the north. And he said, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will help thee. But be of good courage, and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God. Let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. And Joab and the people that were with him, drew nigh before the Syrians unto battle, and they fled before him. So they had confidence in the Lord. That's where the confidence should rest. And uh, the Ammonites retreated to the uh, security of their uh, fortifications, fortified city at Ramah. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, they likewise fled before Abishai's brother and entered into the city. That's their fort, if you will. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they sent messengers and drew forth the Syrians that were beyond the river. And Shochach and the captain of the host of Hadarezer went before them. And it was told David, and he gathered all Israel and passed over the Jordan and came upon them and set the battle in array against them. So when David had put the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him. But the Syrians fled before Israel. And David slew of the Syrians 7,000 men which fought in chariots and 40,000 footmen and killed Shochach and the captain of the host. When the servants of Hadarezer saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they made peace with David, high time, and became his servants. Neither would the Syrians help the children of Ammon anymore. <laughs> that became a problem between them, I suspect. Okay, well, let's get back to the Philistines in chapter 20 came to pass that after the year was expired, at the time that kings go out to battle, <laughs> Joab led forth the power of the army and wasted the country of the children of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried at Jerusalem, and Joab smote Rabbah and destroyed it. Now it's interesting, this is where if you are going to deal with David staying at Jerusalem while Joab is out there fighting, this is where you would expect to see an account of the, the, the business with Bathsheba. If you want to read that, you've got to go back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 11. It's interesting that the chronicler didn't deal with that. Because from his point of view, that was a personal sin. It, wasn't, it was something God forgave him. And by, your sins will be remember, remembered no more and so forth. So it's not a, it, it was not regarded as material to the purpose of the chronicler, which of course is to establish the background to the Davidic dynasty. And so it's interesting that uh, um, it's not mentioned here. That's where you'd expect it. David took the crown of their king, which by the way weighed 75 pounds according to uh, 
2 Samuel. Took the crown of their king from off his head and found to weigh a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it, and it was set upon David's head, and he brought also exceeding much spoil out of the city. And he brought out the people that were in it and cut them with saws and with the harrows of iron and with axes. Even so dealt David with all the cities of the children of Ammon. And David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. They didn't mess around, did they? And it came to pass after this that there arose war at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushathite slew Sippai, which was of the children of the giant, and they were subdued. We're going to keep hearing reference to the giant, Anak. His sons were called the Anakim. We're going to talk more about them because they're widely overlooked and misunderstood by most Bible students. Let's continue. And was war again with the Philistines. And Halahan, the son of Jair, slew Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam. I'll summarize this in a minute. Let's just go through it. And yet again there was a war in Gath, where there was a man of great stature, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six on each hand and six on each foot. And he also was a son of the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, Shimei, uh, uh, David's brother, slew him. These were born unto the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So if you're reading your Bible, okay, there's a couple of giants, they knocked them off. Let's talk about this. You may recall when David was a kid, and, and uh, his father Jesse sent him to bring food to the, his older brothers that were with the army. And at that time, there was a big challenge by Goliath. You all know the story, of course. And young David is quite upset that no one's accepting the challenge on behalf of Zid. They're all sitting there quivering in their boots. So David steps up to handle it. Saul offers him his armor, but David realizes he can't handle that. He's just a kid. He's not, he has, he's not used to dealing with military armor. So, but he's, what he's used to doing is a sling as a shepherd boy. But as he crosses the brook, he picks up five stones. Five, everybody misses that. Verse 40 of 1 Samuel 17, the, the, if you read that story carefully, he picks up five stones, smooth stones, puts them in his pouch, and takes on Goliath. How many stones did he need for Goliath? One, right between the eyes. Brought him down, he used Goliath's sword to cut his head off. Many people miss the fact that Goliath had four brothers. I think if he had five brothers, David would have picked up six stones. <laughs> David killed Goliath. How many knew that before he got here now? <laughs> About 80%. Okay, that's pretty good. All right. Another of, the, of Goliath's brothers was Ishbenob, which David was almost uh, killed by. Abishai saves David's life by killing Ishbenob. Second one. Sibachai is killed by another of David's mighty men, Sibachai. And uh, Lami is killed by Elhanan. And there is a fourth brother of Goliath. He's not named in the text, but he's the one that they beat with, with the six fingers, six toes, etc. They all may have had that for that matter. Jonathan, David's nephew, kills him. That was all uh, what we just read in Chronicles, summarized. You'll find the details in 2 Samuel 21. But this gives rise to a whole other thing. I'm going to suggest to you that many people fail to understand ma major portions of the Old Testament because they haven't done their homework in Genesis 6. So we want to just touch on who on earth are the Rephaim. 
All through the Old Testament, you'll find four tribes mentioned, sometimes generalized as the Rephaim, but they also have specific names, the Zimzimim, the, and, and, and we'll go through all that here, we'll get in a minute. But who are, on earth were they? To understand the Rephaim, it appears to be a, virtually a synonym for what's called, also in the Old Testament, the Nephilim, or the Nephilim. And it takes you into Genesis 6. Now everybody that studied Genesis 6 knows about these strange creatures that were apparently hybrids between fallen angels and women. That's a view we'll touch on here in a minute. But what many people overlook in verse 4 of Genesis 6, these were not only before the flood, they were also after that. So this, whatever was going on in Genesis 6 apparently happened to a lesser extent, but happened again after that. When Moses sends the 12 spies into the promised land, we all know the story how Ten of them came back terrified. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, Hey, the Lord's on our side, let's go get it. It's a wonderful land, etc. You all know the story. If you notice carefully in Numbers uh, 1333, it says, There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, which came of the Nephilim, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So were we, were we in their sight. Now, most of us take that as a ridiculous exaggeration, but maybe it wasn't. Because we have other texts that indicate that some of these Nephilim were 13 feet 6 inches. They're not, they're not just, you know, a little oversized. And they're, they're very strange. And uh, in Genesis chapter 6, it says, When it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. What most people miss in, the, in Genesis 6 is the first two verses are a single sentence. When men, in general, began to multiply, and daughters, in general, were born to them. That the Benaiah Elohim, we'll get into that term, very strange term. It's used in the Old Testament always of a direct creation of God, namely angels. And uh, the, in, in the, it's, that we use in Job, and New Testament, Luke even, Book of Enoch, which is not a part of the Bible, but it is a sound guide for vocabulary, sentence structure, and the beliefs of the rabbis from 200 B.C. to about 200 A.D. And also the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament makes it very, very clear that what we have here are uh, fallen angels, in effect. And so, the sons of God saw the daughters of men. And they were daughters of men, not just... Uh, they were daughters of Benaf Adam, uh, daughters of Adam. There has been a a view to try to make them just the daughters of Seth. But that twists the text, if you will. And uh, so the Neph there were Nephilim in the, on the earth in those days, and uh, the word Nephilim means the fallen ones. It comes from the Hebrew verb nephal, to be fall or cast away or desert. These are fallen angels. From them also came the Hagibarim, the mighty ones. And the Septuagint make, it uses the term gigantes, which is transliterated as if it meant giants. They were giants, but that's not what the word means. The word actually comes from gigas, which means earthborn. So from one point of view, they're fallen ones, and the other point of view, they're earthborn. Okay. And also after that, not just before the flood. And that's, I encourage you to review your notes on Genesis 6, because that's essential background for what we're going to get into. 
In verse 9 of Genesis 6, it says, the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. That, uh, and uh, what does that mean? The word perfect is tamim. It means without blemish. And it's speaking of his genealogy. It was without blemish, sound, healthful, without spot, unimpaired. Um, one of the distinctives of Noah was that he was unblemished by these shenanigans that Satan had uh, undertaken to try to corrupt the human race to prevent a Messiah. The New Testament, this, you always want to make sure, you don't want to build your views on a single verse. In the mouth of two or three witnesses is the ground rule all through the Torah. And we'll find this whole view, the angel view, what, I'll call the, what I'm presenting to you is the, what's called the angel view of Genesis 6. You'll find it confirmed in Jude 6 and 7, 1 Peter 3, and 2 Peter uh, 2. And uh, in Jude verse 6 and 7, it speaks of the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of that great day. In other words, these particular fallen angels that participate in this have a very specific incarceration awaiting the last days. He goes on, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. So see, these angels left their own habitation. I'll come back to that word in the Greek in a minute. And they went after strange flesh that was inappropriate for them. The word habitation in the Greek is okaterion. It's translated here habitation. It only appears twice in the Bible. In Jude 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, 2. In Jude 6, of course, it's referring to that which the fallen angels disrobed from. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, it's the, the uh, estate that you and I aspire to in our resurrection bodies. Um, for this we groan, Paul says, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, uh, upon with, with our house which is from heaven. And the word house there is habitation. It's actually the same word, okaterian. So it may be a technical term for something very specific. Second Peter 2 says much the same thing. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus. Very troublesome word because it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, but is very widely used within Greek literature. I'll come back to that. Came down to Tartus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved under judgment and spared not the old world but saved no one goes on. It even ties this event to the days of Noah, interestingly enough. But the word Tartarus is troublesome. It's translated hell typically in your Bibles, but it's actually a Greek term for a dark abode of woe, a pit of darkness in the unseen world. In Homer's Iliad, it's described as being as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. Wow. I don't know what it is, but the Greek term is obviously indicating someplace that I don't want to go. Okay. It's interesting how this view is embodied in, in the mythology of every ancient culture on the planet Earth. The Greek titans, partly terrestrial, partly celestial, those were Nephilim. They rebelled against their father Eurydice in their mythology. After prolonged contest, they were defeated by Zeus and condemned into Tartarus. That's where that word occurs in their mythology. The angel view is the view that's held by the typical rabbinical literature. It's also the, uh, amplified in the book of Enoch, 2nd century B.C., which is not inspired. Don't, mis don't misunderstand. That it's not part of the canon. But it does embody the rabbinical views of that period. In the testimony of the twelve patriarchs, likewise, Joseph, uh, Josephus Flavius, and the Septuagint all endorse, support this view that I've mentioned. The early church fathers, Philo, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and the rest of them. Modern scholarship, 
G.H. Pember, D. Hahn, McIntosh, Dillich, Gabelin, Pink, Barnhouse, Morris, Unger, Fruchtenbaum, and, and some uh, other of our contemporaries that are conservative scholars see the same view. Not all. Some have a different view. There is a view that's more comfortable that's taught in most seminaries, strangely enough, um, called the, the Sethite view, which argues that what's really in view here, that the, the, the sons of God were the, the godly line, the line of Seth, and what they, were, what, they were, what they did, they intermixed with the line of Cain and so forth. And they try to, you know, they have a whole thing they try to build out of that. Well, the problem with it is, let's twist the text itself. It also implies that they were meant to keep, keep separate, line of Seth and line of Cain. Separation doesn't come for 11 chapters later. Um, it implies that the Sethites were the godly ones and Cain not so. That's got it backwards because the first one to defy God was the son of Seth. Enosh. And uh, it also infer, it, it infers that uh, a Canaanite subset of the Adamites, that uh, it, it doesn't, the Cain the, 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 the and Abel distinctives are not implied uh, uh, in, in the text. But the main problem it has, that does not, the Sethite view doesn't explain why the offspring would be un, supernatural or uh, unnatural. When, when a believer and unbeliever marries, they, their kids may be monsters, but they're not monstrous. They don't have six fingers and big and all that stuff. So there's no explanation for that. Doesn't, see, Sethite view ignores the New Testament confirmation of this, but the reason I'm getting into this tonight is you will not understand a lot of the post-flood issues unless you understand that there were Nephilim, not as extensive as they brought on the flood of Noah. But when God, when God told Abraham, Genesis 17, that his descendants, after 400 years, would come back to this land... That gave Satan four centuries to lay down a minefield. And there were certain tribes that Joshua was instructed to wipe out every man, woman, and child of certain tribes. As a New Testament reader, you read that and it's hard to take. Because we don't understand the problem. It's a gene pool problem. And uh, so uh, those are issues. Then it raises other questions. Who built the ancient monuments? The Great Pyramid of Giza, Stonehenge in Britain. These are all issues. The Circle of Rephaim. If you fly in a helicopter over the Golan Heights, you'll see an unexcavated site called the Gilgal Raphaim. And uh, it has yet to really be discovered in any serious terms, but it's believed by those that have looked at it that it was built by the Raphaim some more than 4,000 years ago. Uh, five, uh, five circles containing 20-ton stones, dated about 3,000 B.C., I guess I should say 5,000 years ago, um, built on a flat plateau. It's only visible, like I showed you, from the air. From the ground, it doesn't look like much. And uh, we had a chance to go on a 4x4 four four up there with some friends and had a chance to look at it. So it's the post-flood Nephilim that we're dealing with. They're called the Rephaim, the Emim, the Horim, the Zamzumim. These are different labels by the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites by the, of these tribes. They're mentioned in Genesis 14, 15, elsewhere. Then we have Arba and Anak and his seven sons, known as the Anakim, that were encountered in Canaan in Numbers 13. We looked at that. Og, the king of Bashan, is known as the king of the giants. And uh, Bashan, the, what we call the Golan Heights up there, is, uh, um, was their domain, and Og was their king. And of course, Goliath and his four brothers are part of the picture, and that's what gives rise to this insert that I've chosen to insert here. There's a little verse in Isaiah 26 that in the English doesn't quite reach you. But it says, They are dead, they shall not live, they are deceased, they shall not rise, therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory divine. What's he talking about? 
The word deceased there is the Rephaim. This implies the Rephaim are not eligible for resurrection. Why? Because Christ did not become a Rephaim and die for them. They're a strange creature. That's also one of the reasons I hold the view that a clone, if you're going, if you're, when they argue about human clones, I don't believe a human clone can be saved because they're man-made. Anyway, Satan had a lot of stratagems. In Genesis 6, he corrupts Adam's line in the hope of preventing a Messiah. As, Adam, as God calls Abraham, Abraham's seed are singled out by Satan as a target. The famine in Genesis 50, the destruction of the male line in Exodus 1. Pharaoh's pursuit, after he says, go, you can go, go ahead and go, he changes his mind, goes after them to try to wipe them out. These are satanic attempts to try to wipe out God's plan. The population of Canaan. And as God now focuses on David, the Messiah is going to be a son of David, that allows Satan now to focus his, his attack on the house of, of, of uh, uh, David. We're going to see in Second Chronicles how Joram kills his brothers, but he misses one. The Arabians slew all but one, Hazariah. Again and again, their servant catches a baby and hides it so it doesn't get, the wipeout doesn't take place. Athaliah kills all but Joash. Hezekiah is assaulted and so forth. Haman's attempt in the days of the Persian Empire to wipe out every Jew in the empire. These are all satanic attempts to try to thwart the plan of God. In the New Testament, Joseph's fears with Mary. He was going to put her away privately for fear because of the situation. Herod's attempts. Matthew 2, where he slaughters all the babes in Bethlehem. Very analogous. At Nazareth, when they tried to throw him off a cliff. And there are two storms at the sea, on the sea. And those were just not, those I don't believe were normal natural storms. Because these fishermen that had them as their native waters were terrified with what's going on. And then, of course, the element known as the cross. You say, well, gee. And then, of course, we see a summary of all of this in, in Revelation 12. So just review your Revelation 12 notes for all this. But the main point is Satan's not through. He's still at it. He still thinks he can thwart the plan of God. To understand his strategy, you need to understand the plan of God. How, where's the, you know, what, what are the spots? And that's why Satan is specifically targeting the Jew and specifically the believing Jew. What does the Golan Heights, Hebron, and the Gaza Strip have in common? They're all areas that Joshua failed to exterminate the Rephaim. If you, and uh, Deuteronomy 20 tells him to do it. Joshua 14 and so forth and following, he tries. If you do a study of the book of Judges, the generation after Joshua, Joshua did a pretty good job doing the first step, but it wasn't the follow-up. The generation that followed him failed to completely defeat the, the pockets of the Rephaim. And if you study the book of Judges in a geographical thing, you'll see there are certain territories uh, that um, they'd failed to seize and control. And those are the same territories that are contested today. And tell me that demons aren't territorial. Isn't that fascinating? I think that's... Jericho was Bet Yara, the house of the moon god. Where's the PLO's headquarters today? Jericho. How interesting. Jesus on the cross, as exemplified by Psalm 22, 12, 
says something very strange. His many bulls have compassed me. The strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. What on earth does that mean? I have no idea. But I do suspect that it has echoes somehow from the demon world. Okay, enough of this. Let's get back to First Chronicles. Pick up chapter 21. David's major sin. If I said to you, what was David's major sin? Most of you would say, well, that was the thing with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. Absolutely, from a personal point of view. From a national point of view, and that's why the chronicler spends a chapter on this one, there's a more subtle, perhaps, but more terrifying um, result here. David's census. Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. This is an editorial comment by the chronicler. He's summarizing. How did Satan do that? I have no idea. But somehow, Satan success successfully got, provoked David to number Israel. We'd say, gee, what's wrong with that? He's a military leader. He ought to take a census, find out what he needs to know how strong his forces are, and so forth. It seems quite innocent to us naively. But let's be careful. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba, even unto Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Beersheba is way to the south, very deserty. The University of Negev is down there. And Dan, of course, is at the northern tip. So it's, like, it's sort of like saying from California to Maine, if you want to, or something, sort of. Number them. And Job answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But, my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Joab recognizes that this is not a kosher move. This is, Joab's words here indicate that he recognizes this is assertive. This is David's pride talking. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.